Hello, everyone, and welcome to Talk with a Doc, the show where we bring your questions to medical experts for insight and information. I'm your host, Mary Renoff, and here with me today is Dr. Jiten Patel, a specialist in critical care medicine and pulmonology from Providence Pulmonary and Sleep Disorder Clinic in Spokane, Washington. Today, we're going to answer your questions about asthma. What is it? How is it treated? All the good stuff. Remember, everyone, most of our questions come from you, our listeners, via social media. We can be found on Twitter and Facebook at Providence and on Instagram under Providence Health Systems. Use the hashtag Talk with a Doc. That's hashtag Talk with a Doc for a chance to hear your questions in our episodes. Before we start, I want our listeners to know that the information provided during this program is for educational purposes only. You should always consult a healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. So let's get started by welcoming our expert today, Dr. Patel, who I'm going to start off with an easy one. Why don't you tell our listeners just a little bit about yourself and your role with Providence? Hi, good afternoon. My name is Jaten. I'm a pulmonologist and critical care physician at Providence Health System, um, located in Spokane, Washington for the past 10 years. I uh, was born and raised in the UK and came to Canada and then moved on to receive my education at University of Kansas, where I finished and completed internal medicine and pediatric medicine, followed by a chief year, and then finally grew up and said I need to get a job, but decided what I wanted to do and what my passion was, was lung medicine. And I completed a three-year program at University of, uh, sorry, Kansas University uh, in public critical care. And I've set up shop here in, a, in beautiful Spokane, Washington. Um, and now division lead here, great practice in Spokane. Well, it sounds like you had a good path to get here. Um, and we're glad that you did. Um, and I know that you have a lot of different types of um, conditions that you treat within your clinic and your program, but today we're going to talk about asthma. Um, so if you wouldn't mind, could you kind of give us all the general, I guess the overview, what is asthma and, and what happens to your body during an asthma attack? Well, asthma is a primary lung disorder of the airways. And there are definitely, definitely while growing up through my training period, residency and fellowship definitions have changed and guidelines have revised. But essentially, it's a disease where you get, not always, but shortness of breath, wheezing or coughing. It may be provoked by environmental changes or seasonal variation or occupational exposures. Sometimes there's a genetic component or familial component. Other times, it just happens with chronic or you know, persistent exposures, some inflammatory agent somewhere in the air. And so the goals of therapy are sort of identifying those patients at higher risk. And that could be the whole paradigm. Um, usually you don't evolve with having symptoms at birth, but as a child grows, they may have recurrent coughing episodes or quote unquote bronchitis as they get into adolescence, pre-adolescence, adulthood, young adulthood, there's a need for an inhaler when they were younger, or they had these recurrent infections. And then they lead on to, you know, adulthood where they're on a inhaler therapy to dilate these obstructed airways. The term obstructed means, well, you better understand that concept. When we breathe, there's two parts to breathing, breathing in and breathing out. Breathing in is an active process. Breathing out is the elastic recoil of your lungs to express air out. Your lungs are like a hollow tree, and like your tree, it branches 100 generations. The airways are much like the tree trunk and the branches and the twigs. And so as you go further out to that more terminal or outside branch on the tree, you get to the foliage of your lung, which are leaves 
and turn little sacks. And we were born with 300 million. By the time we hit puberty, those 300 million leaves or sacks of air are fully matured and we get no more. After puberty, we start to lose around an ounce a year of lung function or volume without tobacco or any certain specific insults to your airway. Your lungs are, if you imagine, tubes within tubes. So imagine a string balloon. And if you blow up a string balloon, you knot it off on one side and you hold the balloon in the middle. All the air in your and my hand displaces to the left and right of it. If you unknot the balloon, all the air on the side where the knot was dissipates and the other side, it stays inflated. That analogy, if you take a tube and take a cross section, there's an outer middle inner circle. The middle part is muscle and glands. Unlike the muscles of your arms and legs, when you flex, those fibers shorten. Well, there's muscles in your airway that are circular. When they flex, they narrow the airway. So coming back to the balloon, if you were to constrict an airway or have something in the airway or something pushing on the airway, everything downstream collapses, just like a string balloon. And just like that, if the muscle constricts of an airway, you essentially narrow the ability for air to be exchanged in and out of those small airways, causing the quote unquote obstruction. <clears throat> and there's variability, seasonal, you know, familial, genetic, or certain work related exposures that can lead to this constriction or obstruction. But essentially what happens at a tissue level, if you look at the lung itself and the airways, you have muscles that are constricted and then glands that are just like in your mouth, you have glands in, behind your tongue for saliva. You have these small glands in your airway that become hypertrophied or engorged. And you start producing a lot of mucus and gunk and that mucus and gunk starts to obstruct the airway, therefore essentially constricting the passageway for air to flow in and out. So it's like filling up a bottle of water. You turn the faucet off, you turn that bottle upside down, and it takes longer for that water to get out of the bottle than it went in. Same, same thing with the airway. Air goes out to the peripheral airways, out to the tributary like a tree, and gets to the leaves, but the airways are constricted. So when you exhale, which is a passive, um, I guess a passive measure, or elasticity of your lung, you have more air trapping back. So you breathe in, but you can't completely exhale your preceding breath. You breathe in again, but you don't completely exhale again. And so then you end up stacking these breaths, and that can give you your sense of hunger for air, chest tightness, coughing, or this high-pitched sound called a wheeze. So anatomically, it's, you know, you have tubes that are very narrow, and that's the sort of anatomical physiologic problems with asthma or how we define it uh, as an obstructive disease. You, you you mentioned that, you know, sometimes it's genetic, sometimes it's environmental. Are those different, I don't know what the word is, is it levels or conditions or types of asthma, or is it just asthma as a whole, and then you just, how it impacts you is a little bit different? Well, sort of asthma, you know, when I was growing up through fellowship, it was defined by you blow into this tube, and if you're not able to completely blow out, that demonstrates an obstruction. But there's different bases or phenotypes to asthma. And so sometimes patients come in with family history of other members, like siblings who had asthma or mom had, you know, being on an inhaler through life and had severe asthma or patients complain of having had recurrent infections as a child. 
So there's different presentations. Um, asthma also can um, be occupational related as well. So there's different phenotypes of names and then there's overlap syndromes where unfortunately an asthmatic may be quiescent for many years and then they pick up that tobacco stick during high school and then start smoking throughout their young adults but don't provoke their asthma or constriction or obstruction of their airway and then all of a sudden they turn 50 and now they're having increasing episodes of coughing, wheezing or breathlessness. So you can have overlap asthma with COPD, chronic obstructive lung disease that you see in tobaccoists. You can have asthma overlap with obesity, hypervalation, sleep apnea. You can have asthma that can mimic heart failure and you have a cardiac wheeze for many years that patients think they have asthma and in fact, they could have cardiac, underlying cardiac issues. So it's about you know piecemealing and sort of dissecting out what patients complain of and then trying to get some of the objective data by doing breathing tests um, and chest films and looking for allergens and certain exposures that can cause these symptoms of obstruction. So, so is asthma kind of a, a moment in time? Maybe you have it for a, a period of time and then say if it's an environmental factor, it changes. Or like you mentioned, if it's obesity and you lose weight, is asthma going to come and go or is it something that you have for the rest of your life? You know, there are no true classic symptoms, right? I've shared with you cough, wheezing, or breathless, but it's intermittent. It could be seasonal, there's a variation. There's, you know, the typical asthma symptoms are not very specific, and sometimes it's difficult to distinguish asthma from other respiratory diseases, but history is key. And the presence of certain respiratory systems consistent with asthma, sort of you can somewhat des uh, demonstrate on lung function then equals asthma. So there's many tools, you know, and part of the tools is physical examination, lung function testing, lab tests. And so when we define asthma, it's sort of, quote unquote, this classic presentation of intermittent coughing, wheezing, and breathlessness with certain, I guess, you know, characteristic triggers and other things that relieve this uh, coughing or wheezing with these bronchodilator medicines. You know, there's no specific test. And, there's no 100% sensitive test that diagnoses asthma. And you can have normal lung function and still have asthma. You can have really bad lung function tests and have relatively normal, no symptoms to mild symptoms. So there's some heterogeneity um, to how we, um, you know, how asthma patients uh, present. There are multiple batteries and uh, consensus statements uh, from the British Thoracic Society, American Thoracic Society, and even the Canadian um, Thoracic Society looking at asthma and the characteristics, diagnosis, and therapies. But what, you, what we have here is the expert panel, um, and now it's moved on to three since my days of training, where the National Asthma Education and Prevention Program sort of delineates this common disorder into, is it mild, moderate, severe? Is it end stage? and sometimes phenotypically describing the severity symptoms rather than chasing around um, the flow because of this heterogeneity and obstruction, meaning you can have an abnormal lung test, but yet you have no symptoms. You can also have severe symptoms and only mild lung abnormalities on testing. So it's not just any one test or battery of tests that's looking for airflow obstruction. It's more so guiding into these recurring symptoms and sort of mitigating the things that can provoke these symptoms. And so clinical manifestations all, don't always increase severity of lung function tests. Then there's also the, this global initiative for asthma and the, the, the um, acronym for that is GINA, G-I-N-A. Uh, and 
what they've also done is sort of define that asthma is a heterogeneous disease and it's heterogeneous in that we do know that amongst all asthmatics, you do have chronic airway inflammation, but that doesn't always equal severe symptoms and respiratory symptoms. We have a gamut of symptoms that amongst all asthmatics, they wheeze, shorter breath, chest tightness or cough, but the intensity isn't always equal to the limitation in airflow. So when we describe these different features, you know, we got to take into account in how patients present and that there's overlap um, diseases that can also mimic asthma and exclude those. The clinical features really in what meaning what a patient complains of, you know, the predominant or the, the majority of my patients in the adulthood and younger adults or post-adolescent, you know, the predominant symptom is wheezing and chest tightness and short breath. Um, but there is a variant called cough, and maybe only at nighttime. Um, patients sometimes complain of wheezing, which is, you know, high-pitched breath sound, but you can blow air out heavily and fast and give you this high-pitched whistle that's not equal to asthma. That could be post-nasal drip or reflux, silent reflux. So there's no standard meaning among the patients, but it's important to sort of, uh, sort of dissect their past medical background and sort of figure out what these variety of breath sounds are, because sometimes noise or this quote-unquote wheeze can emanate from upper airway or just behind your windpipe is your food pipe and they may be experiencing heartburn and it may not be the typical heartburn after eating pizza or having a glass of wine but it could be just <clears throat> clearing my throat or coughing while I'm eating or nighttime I'm having to clear my throat a lot or I'm waking up coughing. <clears throat> so there's a few things with clinical features and how patients present history is key and understanding that there's episodic components. There's no quote unquote specific um, respiratory symptoms beyond the 304, but there are characteristic triggers. And you know, it could be anything from exercise, cold air, exposures as a child, or even work-related exposures to air allergens that, that may suggest asthma. And this is starting this is starting to sound like a puzzle. I feel like there's so many, it's it's almost like a choose your own adventure book. Um it's actually, it's, it's really fascinating. I know we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, I'm going to keep picking your brains. I have so many more questions for you. So if y'all will just give us one quick break, we will be back. We are back on Talk with the Doc, and joining us today is our guest, Dr. Jaden Patel. And we've been talking about asthma. And, Dr., there's so much that goes on with it, and you were talking about how we diagnose it and what are the signs. One of the questions I have for you, though, is typically I've always thought of asthma as a childhood disease. So but you were talking about adult patients, and I'm wondering, is it is it something they grow out of? Is it something that comes back? If you had asthma as a kid, are you likely to have chronic bronchitis as an adult? How does it how does age factor into this? That's a great question. Um, you know, there was the definitions change with time as we learn more about just things in medicine. And what I, you know, thought I knew 15 years ago is completely you know esoteric, and now there's new defined guidelines. But the history of asthmatic symptoms as a child. It's hard because not all patients present with this recollection of what their childhood symptoms were. Uh, they had maybe a cough, or mom had complained that I used to cough a lot at night and may not have or had the absence of any respiratory symptoms. Um, or, you know, like you just suggested, you know, you had uh, childhood diagnosis of recurrent bronchitis or wheezy bronchitis that may favor in adulthood. Well, maybe you did have asthma as a child and it was sort of masked as this recurrent infections or he was a snotty kid or he had a lot of mucus, he was a mucusy child. 
Um, and then there's the other overlap, you know, diseases like bronchiectasis, which means tortuous airways. It could be primary due to recurrent infections of childhood or genetics, or it could be secondary due to in adults, tobacco exposure or occupational exposures that mimic asthma. But personal history or family history of atopy, which means allergies, atopic diseases include, you know, as we dissect and pulmonary providers or physicians sort of pull out, oh, did you have an itchy skin or this thing called atopic dermatitis, or did you suffer from post-nasal drip or seasonal allergic, um, you know, congestion or runny eyes or conjunctivitis, things that favor or suggest suggestive of respiratory uh, symptoms. And then also pulling back further, adult and then childhood going into adulthood work exposures. You know, upwards of 10% of cases of new onset asthma in adults are due to work-related exposures. Occupational asthma is what is deemed now. Um, and that's sort of suspected on whatever history uh, of asthmatic symptoms tempor tempor what do you call it? temporarily associated with work-related exposures um, that may provoke this coughing. And they may be very specific, but it's work-related. And so if we know these sensitized agents that provoke your symptoms, then, you know, there may be a, not just seasonal, but a daily variation. I feel better when I get home or after a week of work at nights and then the following weekend, I felt quite ill. And then it resolves after being away from work. So this work shift um, variability of airflow obstruction. So it's very specific. There are certain labs that are, we can um, draw that help us maybe um, design or sort of direct us towards a diagnosis of occupational exposure. Um, but historic features are important, and the probability of asthma stems from looking at what we were like, you know, 5, 10, 15 years ago. And so there's a temporal line that we're trying to dissect through and define better. But the lack of improvement with certain medications that trigger these symptoms or don't improve, um, steroids sometimes improve, and so patients may present with, I had a lot of steroids, and I'm always using steroids, and that's the only thing that works. Sometimes we have patients who develop asthma, quote-unquote, after the age of 50 or middle age or even older, but then there tends to be overlap manifestations of other diseases, like I mentioned briefly, cardiac or heart related um, issues or obesity hyperinflation that mimic asthma that may only present with shortness of cough and wheeze and everyone deems them to be asthmatic, when in fact, they may be other comorbid states that cause that. You, you mentioned um, steroids and, and treatments and, and that sort of thing. When it comes to, you've made a diagnosis of asthma and somebody has it, how do you actually treat it? Is it medication-based? Is it lifestyle-based? I've, I've heard of inhalers. I've heard of nebulizers. What's the most common thing? I think following an evaluation of history and physical and appropriate battery of tests that include a lung function test and looking at whether you respond to therapy. And in fact, one of the tests give you a medicine that will improve your lung capacities and ability to exhale. Uh, that's called bronchodilator response. Sometimes you can have normal lung function and we have to do provocation. And we actually instill an inhaled agent that provokes your lungs that mimics asthma. Sometimes you can do an exhaled nitric oxide chemical that provokes this constriction. There's blood tests and so forth. So moving on to you know your history and physical and then these batteries of tests, you can come up with a diagnosis of asthma or prevention, prevention, prevention. You know, asthmatics unknowingly may have been smoking. So can you develop asthma with tobacco? Absolutely. As I shared with you also, occupational exposures. So that's about mitigating things that can provoke your symptoms of coughing, wheezing, and breathlessness or chest tightness. So 
you know, mainstay of the tobacco issue is an asthmatic is tobacco cessation. If it's work-related occupational uh, exposures, then having an occupational therapist involved in guiding work exposures uh, to mitigate uh, or provoking symptoms. And then you look into pharmacologic options or therapies, right? These quote-unquote inhalers. And the way these inhalers work is by way of reducing the glandular or the glands from secreting this mucus that plugs up your airway. So reducing that, but also relaxing the muscles of your airway. So if you have a narrowed airway, the best way is to relax the airway. So therefore those muscles become less constricted. So you have a flow that is less resistant to moving back and forth between your outward airways to your proximal airways. So you can inhale and exhale. So when you have your asthmatics being that it could be mild, moderate, severe, and that's symptoms, meaning daily symptoms, hourly symptoms, nocturnal symptoms, or need for rescue therapy, there are options available to us. And so when we get on from the diagnosis to treatment, you know, not all therapies are equal to every patient with asthma. And there are different proprietor blends of inhalers that are available for our patients compared to what we had with primitive mist back in the 80s when I was growing up. Um, now we have, you know, along different arms of therapy, steroids, uh, long-acting muscle relaxants called beta agonists with the steroids. Um, there are what they call anticholinergic or anti These are different medicines that work on the lining of the lung, and they plug into these receptacles that we have innately and they lead to muscle relaxation, just like tobacco smoke may plug into that nicotine receptor in your airway and constrict the muscle. So there's counter medicines that relax the muscles um, that were provoked by whatever air or allergen. And then there's you know, so many um, recommendations, but it's nice because as we've moved on from 2007 to now, 15 years later through my training years to now, as I start my middle third of my career, there's the EPR3 guidelines for asthma treatment and prevention by looking at pill therapy that reduces the ability for your airways to be provoked with a pill once a day to then a rescue therapy that you carry in your pocket that you may, you know, you instruct your patients to trigger a pump before you exercise 15 to 20 minutes. Or when you feel that something's coming on you feel some tightness in your chest or breathlessness to take that albuterol short acting muscle relaxer of your airways and it opens up your airways and gives you that relief of chest tightness, coughing or wheezing. And if you're still having symptoms, the guidelines suggest, oh, let's start on an inhaled steroid through a pump or an inhaler and there's low and high doses. And if your symptoms still provoked or you have more than so many symptoms a day or need for additional rescue therapy, the guidelines say, okay, well, let's get it longer acting um, rescue medicine called a long-acting beta agonist. And there's nice rubric, step-by-step, -step, one through five option. And then with that, you got mild disease, mild-moderate disease, moderate-severe disease to those patients who are now on pill form, rescue form, maintenance form of high-dose steroid with a long-acting albuterol to a long-acting what we call anticholinergic, but yet we're still having symptoms of coughing, wheezing, breathlessness on top of these repeat, you know, visits to the ER or the GP or the pulmonary office, then there is additional therapy called prednisone, which is an oral steroid that is essentially a systemic or body anti-inflammatory, but it's a double-edged sword. If patients are severely symptomatic and having recurrent needs for 
prednisone as a steroid, it also has with it 100 side effects. So we have to be, uh, we, the, the goal is to prevent symptoms and to mitigate um, uh, symptoms and further reduce the provocation of these triggers and reduce the triggers for these symptoms before we get to that step four or five. And unfortunately, those individuals who get to step five, there are medicinal options through injection. There's all like fortnightly or every month or every six weeks or even every two weeks injections to abate your immune response. Or there's non-pharmacologic or non-medicinal options like a non-invasive procedure called bronchial thermoplasty, which literally over a 12-week period, um, we ablate or warm up the airway to the point of about 60 Fahrenheit, enough that it reduces the muscle bulk. Therefore, if you reduce the muscle bulk in your airway, it allows for less constriction. Therefore, the average airway caliber remains less constricted, therefore less symptomatic and less obstruction. There's a whole rubric, which is wonderful <laughs> with the ATS, BTS, and now the GINA guidelines and EPR3 that has allowed us to be a little bit more um, stepwise. And, you know, there's a process to it rather than throw everything at the person. And this may have worked. You know, when I was growing up through residency, just before, I remember patients being given inhaled gold. <laughs> and wow. Like methotrexate. So I'm glad we've come so much further. Uh, <laughs> Asthma care and targeted therapy with these biologics, which have profoundly changed asthma care. And sort of just a rerun real quick. One of the things we now have um, gotten smarter about is defining asthma. And without getting too esoteric, we'd call it type one, type two inflammation or non-inflammation, which when you look at your immunity, we can look at certain immune soldiers that can provoke or worsen your symptoms. So what the therapies are guided towards targeting those own self antibodies that are provoking your lungs to uh, constrict. And so these immune therapies that were not available to us, you know, a decade ago have profoundly changed where I've got young ladies who are in their thirties to older uh, men in their fifties with 20 years of chronic steroids and high dose steroids where they're brittle, they're diabetic, overweight because of the therapy for asthma. And now we got them off of prednisone and just on low dose, low maintenance therapy via inhalers, which is, just so gratifying to see because it's really, it's hard because you're guiding therapy towards symptoms, not necessarily objective measures within flow, right? So you can, as I said, you can have normal flow patterns, but yet have severe symptoms or you can have severe abnormalities on your lung function testing, but yet only have mild to no symptoms. It's just, it's, it's scary, but it's also wonderful to see that heterogeneity amongst us. Well, you know, one of the things you've talked about is kind of the evolution and how things have changed. And I know we're almost out of time, but there was a couple of questions that came in that were kind of down this path. Um, I don't know, maybe you can answer all three or maybe you pick one or two. But, you know, one of the things we saw was how has COVID played a role in asthma? Is, you know, is it is it is it something we're seeing as a long term effect? Another question we had was with the wildfires, right, that we've seen just increasing year after year and, and becoming more and more expansive. How, what, you know, what do you recommend for people who have bronchial issues during these kind of fire situations? And then I think, you know, the other thing I would just ask you is, is, is it something that we can handle on our own or maybe not have to go to the doctor or do we just try to treat it? So like you mentioned wheezing, right? In cold air. Well, I know that if I run in the cold, I wheeze for at least a day or two. So I've learned not to do that. If it's too cold, I don't run outside. 
how do we as people kind of deal with what's evolving in society and what we're doing and how that impacts our kind of overall health when it comes to our, our lungs? So let's start with asthma um, and COVID. Um, it's a scary time for patients with respiratory diseases, but at least the data that we've collected prospectively, not retrospectively, because we're so active in this pandemic, but there doesn't appear to be a Asthma doesn't appear to be a strong risk factor for acquiring coronavirus um, or to even increase the risk of more severe disease or death for the majority of these patients. Now, this is pretty reassuring data, you know, but it's all observational material. Um, having said that, there are a few studies when you dissect mortality or risk of death in those patients who are intubated, meaning on a breathing machine or being on a breathing machine for a longer time. Well, you're asthmatic, you tend to have less reserve with these asthmatic. Um, I just think there is, when if you are an asthmatic and you develop coronavirus to the point where you're requiring hospitalization, it tends to be from observational studies that there is prolonged mechanical ventilation. But otherwise, you know, you know expert groups amongst my mentors, you know, the best thing is avoidance, prevention, and vaccination. Um, and sort of to continue all our regular medications, even during COVID, because you can have COVID while I have, well, an asthmatic can uh, have COVID and not have, be fulminant. So it's important to still avoid, vaccinate, and those preventative measures, but also continue your maintenance therapy. So that's the COVID part. Um, I, I think I heard asthma and uh, fires. Um, you know, that's an air allergen, and we live in the Pacific Northwest, it's pristine, it's beautiful, but it's a volcano for allergens from not just the fires, but pine, alder, maple, the different sejuah and uh, grass seedlings here. So although it's nice and sunny and you have four seasons for an asthmatic, it could be a volcano of these air allergens and force you with temperate changes at this latitude. These arrow, I mean, sorry, these fires have become a, a risk factor for asthmatics. And so, yeah, keeping hydrated, avoidance, being air conditioned. I always share with my uh, asthmatic patients through the continuum of, you know, 16 and above to your, my 70-year-old asthmatic, stay indoors, keep hydrated. And the ideal temperature is at 65 Fahrenheit to, you know, at best, don't, don't, don't be outside when it's 78 and above. It's that sort of temperate environment you want to stay in. Because these are blind irritants that can provoke these airways that then will, you know, cause this congestion and constriction. So, yeah, fires, indoor cooking, biomass um, exposures, fuel, diesel fuels. These are all similar air allergens that you want to avoid that will provoke this, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, onset of your asthma symptoms. What else we got? I think you mentioned... Uh, I think the only thing I had was, um, you know, what can we do to, to reduce the chance of triggering it? Like I was mentioning cold air. Do I stay out of the cold air in the morning? That sort of thing. Um, you know, everyone's different. Not osmetics are the same. And there's heterogeneity amongst osmetics. And so it really depends on, you know, your best um, and where you perform the best exercise. There is, you know, I, I remember, I recall reading an excerpt from the American College of Chess Physicians saying that, 30% of elite athletes are asthmatics. Elite athletes, that's amazing. And so how have they, through exercise physiology, able to develop this peak exertional tolerance in the face of 
constricted airways. And so dietary modification, exertion activity, condition state, where you train, how you train, what you eat, and also other things that mitigate the provocation and reduce those risk factors. Okay, well, if it's cold air that provokes or lessens your eight-minute mile to then a 10-minute mile, that's probably your asthma. You can One of the options is an oral pill, that's once a day singular, as what guidelines suggest, or maybe 15 minutes to 30 minutes before you decide to go for a run first thing in the morning, it happens to be cold that day, you take an albuterol um, actuation or, or a dose of your albuterol to then dilate and then work through that you know eight minute mile or reach that eight minute mile rather than that 10 minute mile. You know, the whole perinatal, prenatal stuff and you know, there's other things that, you know, our arithmetics who are pregnant. It's funny that uh, maternal physiology is pretty neat with asthma. In our severe asthmatics, you know, they actually get worse with increasing plethora of congestion as gestation increases. But then all of a sudden in your third trimester, one's own hormones relaxes the muscles of respiration. So in fact, your severe asthmatics who become pregnant, their asthma symptoms actually pull back their inhalers because their own hormones dilate the smooth muscle of the airways. So it's also education, right? Um, I, I don't have any specific vitamins or therapies from my perspective that are randomized that I wanted to share, uh, but there is some observational data looking at uh, vitamin D, um, calcium, that you know, it's worthwhile looking, looking and lessening the, um, certain saturated fats, looking for polyunsaturated fats, looking avoiding your omega-6s is a big thing because that can lead to airway inflammation, certain minerals, uh, there's some, the English or um, Europeans are quite ahead because there's a larger cohort of population of airway um, problems or limitations in Europe. And they're looking at vitamin E, vitamin C. Um, your Italians are also looking at, you know, there's a higher cohort of a tobaccoist in um, middle Europe. And they're looking at Mediterranean diet. You know, uh, we hear that on almost every show, Mediterranean diet. Starting to think there's there's something to it here. Yeah, yeah, yeah I think there is. I think I think personally, I think we're going to have to have you come back in maybe like six months to a year and, and figure out what has changed. What is the research showing? Well, this has been so informative and I know we're out of time, so we may have to have you come back and talk a little bit more with us. But thank you so much, Dr. Patel, for joining us today on Talk with a Doc and everyone for listening and sending in your questions. We look forward to future topics with more experts from Providence. So make sure to listen to our future shows on Dash Radio under the Future of Health Radio or on your favorite podcast platform. Be sure to follow us on social media. We can be found on Twitter and Facebook at Providence and on Instagram under Providence Health Systems. To learn more about our missions, programs, and services, visit Providence.org. Thanks for listening. Music.